40. And we'll read Isaiah 40 from verse 9 to 31. Isaiah 40 from verse 9 to 41. Now we read the word of God from verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counsellor has informed him? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and they're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock been taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, 
that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. What do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel? Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Let's now continue our scripture reading, and that's the text for this morning. It's Isaiah 6, the verses 1 to 7. Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 7. Isaiah 6 from verse 1, where we read, In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filled with, filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me. For I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Let us now pray before we listen to preaching. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is firm and true a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Will you enable your servant to proclaim your word faithfully and boldly 
Enlighten our minds that we may understand your words. Open our hearts that we may receive the message and embrace it. Write your words in our hearts so that they may go with us wherever we go and whatever we do in the week ahead. Hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we are here again to meet our Lord God. We come into his presence. Can you imagine it? To worship in God's presence? What is it? Yes, who is God? Would you not like to see God? It's always worthwhile to meet a person you are in contact contact with. Then you know who you are dealing with. It helps you to an extent to know what he is. Or what he's like. Would you not like to see God? When you see him, you know who you're dealing with, who you are worshipping. Well, brothers and sisters, the prophet Isaiah had the privilege of seeing God, between inverted commas. And now we may also see God through his eyes. I'll put the word see between inverted commas. Because scripture teaches us that no mortal man can physically see God. God is a spiritual and invisible being. Yet at the same time, the text does speak of seeing. Isaiah sees a manifestation of the glory of God in human form adapted to a human capacity so that we might perceive the inconceivable majesty of God. I preach you the word of the text on the theme, Isaiah's vision of the holy God. Isaiah's vision of the holy God. And we'll consider three things. Firstly, who is God? And secondly, how do the angels react And thirdly, who am I? Isaiah can know who God is. In the year of King Isaiah's death, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne. It's for him an overwhelming experience. It leaves a lasting impression impression on him. After meeting God, he constantly talks about God as the Holy One of Israel. He was so impressed by his God 
that he says in Isaiah 40, To whom will you compare God? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. There's 15. Nothing and no one can be compared to God. He is the Almighty, the Holy One. What did Isaiah see? He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. This is how Isaiah saw God. He looked, looked again and understood. There is the Lord seated on a high and exalted throne. It's striking that he does not describe God. He only mentions the enormous robe that trails on the ground and that fills the entire temple. What does this tell us? When people see God, then they see that he cannot be described. He is beyond comprehension. He is so great that he surpasses our imagination. And that's why Isaiah also writes in chapter 40 verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One? Brother, sister, how does this affect you? The Lord says, look, this is how I am. I exceed all human imagination, all human measurements. Does this not encourage you in your faith? In chapter 28 verse 29, Isaiah says that the Lord of hosts has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. Take his work of redemption when he sent his son to this earth. He let his most precious son die on the cross for everyone who believes. And he washes away all your sins through his blood. Well, when I think about Jesus Christ on the cross, will that sacrifice truly reconcile me to God? It's something I can't fully comprehend. But our God is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. This also means you can rely on God. With him you are safe and secure. This is often one of the most difficult things for us humans. We want to have control over things ourselves. And then it may happen that we call God to account. Why does he do this or that? 
Why does he do it in such a way? Why the difficulties, setbacks in my life or in that of others? But brother, sister, do not think that you can follow, understand the incomparable God with your small mind. After all, who are you dealing with? With the almighty, sovereign God of whom Isaiah says in chapter 40, verses 13 to 14, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counsellor has informed him? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him in the way of understanding? Do you dare to call God to account? Trust him. Entrust yourself to him. This is what Isaiah encourages you to do when he says, look, I saw the Lord sitting in his greatness and power. It's also in his power. Isaiah sees the Lord as the almighty king, as the ruler over all. He says in verse 5, My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Our God has hosts of angels at his disposal. The shepherds saw something of this when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Often the Bible gives us a glimpse of it. The kingship of God and his hosts of angels made a lasting impression on Isaiah. He saw the Lord of hosts sitting on a lofty and exalted throne. What does this imply? God has all power. As Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 22 and 23, it is he who sits above the vault of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Here you hear a man speaking who stood before the throne of God and watched in amazement. Unbelievable. All he could see was the enormous train of God's royal robe that filled the whole throne room. What a greatness. What a power. What a glorious majesty. That's how your God is. Thus Isaiah addresses us as God's people in chapter 40, verse 27 and 28. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? 
and that just as due me escapes the notice of my God, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary and tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Beloved, we are in God's hands. And the more you are overwhelmed by the greatness of God, the more childlike your faith will be. It evokes in us childlike reverence and trust. Our God is incomparable. We cannot understand or scrutinize him. Our God is the mightiest in heaven and earth. It also means that God proceeds with his plans. This also comes to the fore when the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Three times holy. In other words, supremely holy is the Lord. Infinitely holy. Holy in the highest possible degree. What does that mean? When the word holy is used for the Lord, it means incomparable. It describes what makes God, God. His uniqueness, his excellency, his exalted godliness. That which distinguishes him from us creatures. That's why he says in Hosea 11 verse 9, For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. That's what it is. Holy means that the Lord God is totally different from us. Infinitely greater, better, more glorious. You immediately understand that you as a human being are so much smaller, insignificant compared to him, mere creatures. The word holy also reminds us of God's aversion to sin. He is absolutely pure. He cannot tolerate sin. God's holiness precedes all things. We read in Isaiah 5 verse 16, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in judgment, and the Holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. God therefore shows his holiness through his justice and righteousness. That's how God is. Brothers and sisters, what does this do to you? What are you going to do with this? Well, what do the seraphim do? We look at that in the second point, how the angels react. The seraphim focus on God. They demonstrate their reverence for the Lord. 
What do you do when you revere God? You didn't say that God goes above everything else. He is number one in your life. It's your love and delight to do his will. Think about it. How do you live with your God? Is he truly the centre of your life and worship? Just look at the seraphim in Isaiah 6. They focus on God. They know, holy, holy, holy is our God. And the angels teach us true worship. Just listen. How do the seraphim respond to God's appearance? We read in verse 3. And one called out to another. Isn't that strange? Should a true worship be directed exclusively to God? But beloved, the worship of God also means that you call one to another. Encourage one another. As the seraphim do. And they call to each other. Do you see it? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's how the angels call to each other. It's contagious. When you sing in church, you sing to the glory of God. But you also address each other. You take each other along in your song. You encourage each other to true worship. But what is true worship? It begins with the fact that you, you are, so to speak, full of who God is and what God is doing. You are full of joy in God. That's what the angels in Isaiah 6 are. When they see God in his power and glory, they cannot but sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They're full of who God is and what God wants to do. Now I ask you, do you also have moments in which you are overwhelmed by gratitude and praise? That you bring God your praise? Do you tell God how happy you are with him? How happy you are that Jesus Christ died for your sins? How happy you are that the Holy Spirit is busy has been given to you to renew your life? Do you say to God how much it means to you that he cares for you? Yes, brother, sister, do you have those moments too that you're full of it, that you bring it before God in your song and prayer? You have every reason to. 
The Bible is full of your God as your great and awesome God. And every moment of your life, God is there if you just open your eyes to see it in faith. Who would not worship at the sight of such a God? The text tells us even more about the worship of the seraphim. In verse 2 we read, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. Just think about it. The angels are without sin. Heavenly beings. Yet they cover their faces with their wings. With that they say, as it were, God is so great and glorious as a creature you cannot just look at him. Gaze upon his holiness. Kelvin compared it to the rays of the sun. The rays of the sun are so bright that you as a creature cannot look into them. That's how it is with God. Even the sinless angels do not look God straight in the face. They show reverence and awe. Is this what you do when you worship the Lord God? Reverence and awe belong to true worship. For a God is the holy God. Infinitely holy. The seraphim also have two wings to fly with. With that they say, speak Lord, and we will fly wherever you send us. We are at your service. Yes, that is reverence. That you are eager and ready to do the will of the Lord, to serve him. Worship of God is thus stimulated by fellow brothers and sisters. It involves joy in God and it shows itself in a reverent attitude of one who is at God's disposal. Do you recognise that in yourself? The response of the angels teaches us what worship is. And then there's also the reaction of creation. We read, And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filled with smoke. Yes, beloved, sometimes the rest of creation seems to know better how to respond to God than we humans do. How often do we not read in scripture that the earth shakes when the Lord appears? When the angels cry out, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, then the thresholds tremble and the temple is filled with smoke and that smoke underlines God's holiness 
And that sinful man cannot simply come into God's presence. Thus the question needs to be asked, who am I? That's the third point. We read of Isaiah's response in verse 5. Woe is me, for I'm ruined, wretch that I am. Seeing God, Isaiah is shattered by the sense of his own sinfulness. Brothers and sisters, compare this woe is me with the woes spoken of in chapter 6, chapter 5. There Isaiah expresses a woe over those who are guilty of offensive sins. Six woes are pronounced. Verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house and join fields to field until there is no more room. Verse 11, chapter 5. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And then finally verse 22 to 20 and 23. Woe to those who justify the wicked by a bribe for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are right. That was chapter 5. And now we get chapter 6. Isaiah now stands before holy God himself. And then he can say nothing but, woe is me. Do you realise what this means? This woe is me is remarkable after the woe to them in Isaiah 5. It's so easy to gloss over our own sins and to criticise and condemn others. It's easy to compare myself to others and think that I am better. Well, Isaiah is one of God's great prophets. However, when he stands before God, he says, Woe is me. Why? Well, he stands before the infinite holiness and glory of his God. Such greatness exposes my smallness. Such holiness exposes my sinfulness. Such a light reveals my darkness. You stand before God's holiness 
and realize that you're a sinner. And Isaiah says, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. But brothers and sisters, should Isaiah, the prophet, truly be so concerned about this? Surely the sinners mentioned in chapter 5 have much more to worry about. Isaiah specifically refers to his unclean lips. Why this focus on his lips or mouth? Perhaps Jesus' words of Matthew 15 verse 11 can shed some light on this. There Jesus says, It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Think also what James writes about the tongue in James 3. There he calls the tongue a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Well, Isaiah realized this. And he recognized that he was not the only one struggling with that problem. He understood that the whole nation was infected with dirty mouths. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Notice how Isaiah identifies himself with his people. This teaches us true humility before God. When you stand before God and his holiness shines through you, so to speak, then you don't isolate yourself from God's people. Then you do not feel exalted above others. But then you stand beside your brothers and sisters. That typifies holy men of God. Remember how Nehemiah identified himself with his people when he heard that the walls of Jerusalem were still in ruins. Nehemiah wept, fasted and prayed, confessing the sins of God's people, which we, notice the plural, which we, he says, have sinned against you. I In my father's house have sinned against you. Nehemiah 1 verse 4 to 7. That's how the saints of God act. They sit among God's people. The prophet of God says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among my people of unclean lips. I'm aware of my own sin and guilt. I humble myself before God and man. Who am I to stand before holy God? Beloved, what more can we say? Woe is me, says Isaiah. And I repeat it for myself, woe to me. But then there's also that good news. Christ cleanses me from all my sins. That's what I can say as well. 
how I need Jesus Christ and how great is my Lord Jesus, my Saviour, who saves me from that woe to me. Look, an angel flies to Isaiah with a burning coal in his hand and touches Isaiah's mouth with it. And he says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. I am indeed a sinner. Woe to me. But when I believe, I'm also a redeemed sinner. Thanks to Jesus Christ. That's how great our holy God is. He exposes sin, but he also removes sin through his Son, our Saviour. Does this teaching that we are sinners take away our joy? The opposite is true. This doctrine indeed makes me very small and humble. Thank God for that. It makes me realise how dependent I am on God and his grace. It makes me long for grace. It teaches me to desire salvation. It also gets me to pray for the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. I long for and receive forgiveness and renewal. Our God is indeed a holy and gracious God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, through the eyes of Isaiah, we got a glimpse of your greatness, your exalted majesty, your absolute perfection and glory. May this encounter with you bring about in us deep reverence and trust. Fill us with awe and wonder. Get us to realise again how mind-boggling it is that you, in your infinite glory and majesty, would wish to associate with us weak and sinful human beings. We are like dust before you. Yet you come with such perfect plans to rescue us through Jesus Christ. How wonderful is your grace and love. We thank and praise you for that. Work in our hearts true love and adoration for you that we may all be full of you and wish to worship and serve you with our whole life. And Father, may many more people be drawn to your light and get to know you 